0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. John eleven twenty six, twenty five 25-46 Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you.
1: Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is God's word.
2: My brother Wayne was a hot-headed, rebellious, hedonist, an existentialist who championed selfishness until he was 20 years old when he met Jesus Christ. He was transformed. He was at peace. He had purpose. He was even-tempered and giving. He became one of the most selfless people I've ever known. On his 22nd birthday, he left work early with a friend to enjoy the beautiful weather as he rode their motorcycles through the... uh, through the, uh, the pathways and all the way to his church. I didn't think about his birthday because I was thinking about a, a date that I had that evening. And as I was getting uh, prepared for it, we got a phone call. Wayne had been in a motorcycle accident and he was in serious condition. So I made my way to the hospital as the family was inside. I, I went outside and the cool night air just lots of questions in mind and then one of my other brothers came out to me and said Wayne has died questions flooded my mind where were you god my brother has served you he he went to church and so i had questions about god Questions about where my brother was. He had hope in Jesus, but was that real? I had questions about myself. What's my destiny? When a loved one dies, questions swirl around us. And so we turn this morning to John chapter 11, where God answers a number of those questions. Let's pray. Our Father, these questions may be removed from us today, but they will come into our lives time and again. Lord, take this word this morning, hide it in our hearts so we can know we can trust you and we can point others to you as being trustworthy, a God who is engaged in our lives, who does care and provides the greatest hope of all. In Jesus we pray, amen. So last week Travis opened this chapter and we saw that Jesus had fled Jerusalem because the religious leaders had sought his life and he made his way to Judea in the north. While he was in Judea, he received news that his friend Lazarus, he was so close to that family of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He received news that Lazarus was gravely ill and everyone expected that Jesus would immediately pick up and go to Bethany which was only two miles away from Jerusalem and bring his healing touch to Lazarus and all would be well. But instead Jesus waited day after day until Lazarus was dead. Then Jesus decided to go down to Bethany. It it perplexed the disciples Why would he go down now when he didn't go down when he had an opportunity to save Lazarus' life? Why would he go back to Jerusalem area where they were seeking his life now when he could make no difference at all, but Jesus persisted in saying, it's to God's glory. And so he makes his way and he first meets Martha. And he speaks words of hope to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. And then Mary comes out to him and he feels her pain and he weeps with her and then he moves to the tomb itself. And he asks them to take away the stone and they do. And he simply speaks a word to Lazarus and Lazarus who had been dead for four days comes out of the tomb still wrapped in the linens in which he was buried. This story Answers a number of questions, and four of the biggest questions we ask ourselves when a loved one passes: Can we ask God questions? Can we question God? Can we weep? Can can we cry and mourn? Can we hope? And at times like this, can can we think about ourselves? So let's look at these questions first. Is it okay to ask God questions? Is it okay to question God? And we see in this passage, Mary, Martha, and the mourners, all second-guess Jesus' decision to not come immediately. And in that second-guessing really is the question, why didn't you come, Jesus? We see it in verse 21. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary asked the same question, verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the group of mourners around the family wondered the same, we see in verse 37. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Why wasn't he there? Each one of these questions displays a lack of faith, a lack of trust in Jesus. Yet, Jesus doesn't reprimand anyone for asking questions. Instead, he embraces these questions and he answers them with what he does. It's okay to ask God questions. In fact, we only do harm to ourselves when we suppress the questions trying to say, oh, we are people of faith and we keep our questions down. No, we need to ask these questions because they are stepping stones to our spiritual growth. We see that Precisely in this passage. At the beginning, everyone thought Jesus was a miracle worker. He could open the eyes of the blind. He could heal sick people. If he had come, he could heal Lazarus. At the end of the story, they were wowed. Because he is also master over death. This is one who conquers death who can raise back to life someone who had been dead for four days. Feel free to ask God questions. He may not answer those questions immediately, but open yourself up. Open your eyes up to how God is working, and you may find some answers. But don't turn your questions into judgments about God. One of the most often asked questions is, if God is a loving God, why does he allow so much suffering and evil? But in reality, a lot of people have turned that question into a judgment about God. They've used this as an excuse to not believe in God, to not follow God, to not care about God, and to judge him as saying, you are not involved, God, if you do exist. Don't make such judgments. Always wait to the end of the story. Do you remember reading the fairy tales, whether it be Snow White or Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast? They always go through these travails and problems. And we always read that last chapter when love seems to conquer all and bring all together. And we read, they lived happily ever after. And all of a sudden, all those difficulties in the middle of the story no longer mattered at the end of the story. Revelation, the last couple of chapters of that book, give us the end of the story. That as broken as this world is now, Jesus Christ is going to return and he is going to fix all things that are broken. He will conquer death and do away with it. He will do away with disease. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Wait to the end of the story and we will see what we are going through now through different eyes. Don't use questions to judge God. Wait and see what God does. It's okay to ask God questions. Is it okay to cry at funerals? I mean, seems like the answer is obvious. We are heartbroken when a loved one has passed. Yet, there are some who might say, crying is a lack of faith. I mean, don't we believe that someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is with God now? Don't we believe they're in a better place and that they've got it It's great for them, really painful for us. So our tears don't seem to be for them, they seem to be for us. So is it okay to cry? Why would we cry for somebody if they are in bliss with God? For the same reason Jesus weeps. We read in verse 33 through 35, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he says where have you laid him and they said to him lord come and see and jesus wept now the timing of jesus crying is raises questions like jesus sees them weeping Then he asks where the tomb is. Why does he ask where the tomb is? Because he knows he's about to step in front of that tomb and bring Lazarus back to life. And yet, even though he has that knowledge that Lazarus is going to be alive again, he's still weeping. Why? Because he feels the pain of Mary and the mourners. He has entered into what they are experiencing. And they are experiencing tremendous loss and separation and pain. And he feels that Jesus Christ is empathetic with us. Think of that. The God of the universe understands everything we are going through. He understands everything that we feel. And he empathizes with it. The next time you are heartbroken, the next time you are troubled, next time you are weeping, imagine Jesus is next to you, feeling what you feel, and weeps with you. But it says more than he was weeping. It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. And that word deeply moved in his spirit is stronger than that. There there was an anger, a rage that Jesus had. It wasn't about Mary or the mourners. He saw them weeping and he wept. It was about what death does. It's about what sin has brought into this world and the pain that sin has brought into this world. And the death of Lazarus just brings that all forth. And to see what people go through because of the result of sin and its consequences. Jesus is angry at sin. You know, when we ask the question, why does a loving God allow suffering and evil? Why are we going through a, a pandemic? Why are fires raging in the west and hurricanes striking our southern states, why is there such division in our country? And that doesn't even speak of what's going on around the world, the floods in Niger, the wars, the terrorism. And we do wonder, God, why if you love us? We know we'll answer that question in the last chapters of Revelation. He does love us. But don't think that God is immune to that question. He does care and he loves, and it's shown in his rage about sin. As much as we hate the brokenness in the world and what we do to each other through our sin, Jesus hates it more. And he was outraged about it. And he hates it so much that he did something about it. He went to the cross and he became sin, 2 Corinthians tells us. He became sin. And as sin, he took the judgment of God, the wrath of God that we all deserve, and it was poured out upon Jesus. So one, we could have the end of that story. We can experience what Revelation promises. God does care deeply moved and he weeps over the world and then does something about it it's okay to ask God questions it's okay to cry and to feel the pain is it okay to hope it's another question we think the answer is obvious yeah I mean everybody says you gotta have hope But our hope is being questioned more and more today. To some, it sounds like a cliche when we say, he's in a better place. She's with the Lord now. I was at a funeral where the pastor said something like that, and somebody in the pew was heard muttering to himself, Fantasy, pure fantasy. Stephen Hawking's renowned physicist genius said this, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That's a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. That's a growing perspective out there. That we have religion, we have this belief in order to, to deal with the fears we have about death. Is it okay to hope? Is our hope real? Jesus says in this passage it is. The man whose life has transformed this world whose teachings have reached more people than anyone else, whose words cut to the very core of our beings, and we say, yes, that's true, said this. Verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And what he's talking about is eternal death. This is a bold promise, but think of the one who gave it to us. But did he give these words to us just to help us get through, kind of as a placebo of something we think might work? Jesus knew that we would question his motive in saying these things. In John 14, 1 through 3, he says to His disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go, I prepare a place for you, and I will bring you to that place. But notice, not only does he make this promise of an eternity with him, Notice what he says in the middle. If it were not so, would I make it up? Jesus knows we have that question. He knows the thinking of a Stephen Hawking's. And he says, I would not have told you this if it wasn't true. I would have just skipped the topic altogether because my words are true. The Apostle Paul doubles down on that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says Christianity hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus made this promise but what he does in John 11 is he proves his words. He proves that he conquers death. As we read, Verse 38-39, then Jesus deeply moved again, raging against sin and death, came to the tomb, it was a cave, stone lay against it, Jesus said, take away the stone, verses 41 and 42, so they took away the stone, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, you've heard me. And I knew you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. So Jesus could have just walked up to that tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. But no, he said, Father, thank you. And he said it because he wants everyone around to know who he is. That he is the resurrection and the life he calls forth Lazarus to prove that he doesn't just offer us empty words and platitudes and cliches to say to one another, but he proves that he conquers death. And that's what Paul approaches in 1 Corinthians 15 where he does rest all of Christianity, not on the resurrection of Lazarus, but on the resurrection of Jesus himself. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, they've perished. They're gone. That's it. If in Christ we hope in this life only, if Christianity is only for the here and now and Everything else is false promises about the future. We are of all people most to be pitied. What are you saying? You come as Christians today. He's saying if Christ is not raised, if he is not alive, that isn't something we should teach each other because it makes us better and gives us comfort. We're to be pitied for believing in that because we've believed a lie and we've lived our whole lives on that lie. But he continues, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our faith is something to be pitied if Christ is not raised. But it is life and eternal life if he has been raised. See, Paul doesn't appeal to the nice moral teachings of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, even the other miracles of Jesus as the proof for Jesus. That Christianity sounds good. He appeals to a historical event, something that has taken place in time-space history. Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus many would say that's a fantasy Frank Morrison was one of those people and he set out to prove that the resurrection was a myth and a fantasy and so he took a long sabbatical went to Jerusalem studied the issue and he wrote the book who moved the stone the answer was God because Christ had risen It's historical. Explore the history. Look at the evidence. We don't have time to do that. But I just want to make one quote. Offer one quote from Robert Spitzer, who's essentially saying, if you study all other religious leaders in their movements, you'll see that Jesus Christ is distinct. That there is no explanation for the transformation of this world, beginning right after A.D. 33 in the crucifixion of Jesus. Nothing else can explain it except the resurrection, and this is what he says. Why did Christians worship a defeated, crucified Jesus as Lord and then endure persecution for doing that worship? Why did Christianity pick up momentum from a crucified leader when other messianic movements at the time faded away when their leaders died? Why didn't Christianity pick out another leader in the face of their leader's crucifixion like other messianic movements whose leaders were executed? How did it become one of the most inspired in dynamically expansive missionary organizations in the history of religion, when a publicly humiliated and executed Messiah was its sole leader. Above all, why did it become such a powerful Messianic movement capable of threatening the Roman Empire within a few generations after that same empire had executed its Messiah? What kind of cause could explain so many unique phenomena? A powerful one. One capable of overcoming the crucifixion of the movement's leader. Capable of communicating both imminent and transcendent hope amidst the death of the presumed Messiah. One capable of revealing that God's kingdom had arrived in this world. Capable of providing sufficient momentum to turn a little Jewish subcult into an empire-wide, indeed worldwide, religion within a few generations. The powerful cause would seem to be the post-resurrection experiences of Jesus in combination with Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit, which enabled the apostles to perform miracles in the name of Jesus. How do you explain it? except that it's God that did something miraculous. Jesus has risen. It's okay to ask questions, it's okay to cry, it's okay to hope, and it's okay to think about yourself at such times. You know, funerals are about the person who died. It's the memories that we have. It's the celebration of the deceased's life. We don't want to be thinking about ourselves but but a question always comes up. What about my death? What happens when I die? And it's kind of question we need to ask Ecclesiastes 7.2 says this it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting it's saying it's better to go to a funeral than a party that's not where I want to go, I'd rather be at a party, but this is why for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart What he's saying is a party is is a great thing to go to but it's not reality. It's it's an escape from reality. We put aside all of our cares to, to enjoy other people or enjoy an event and we don't think about everything else. A funeral is reality. Every one of us will die one day. And at a funeral we are faced with that reality and perhaps the biggest question we have in life we take it to heart. In fact, Jesus required Martha to think about herself. When he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe this? Martha, we know Lazarus has died, but what about you? Do you believe this? And you know what happens at funerals? We we wonder and then we leave it behind. And we try to stay away from that question. We ask that question again this morning. We need to face it. Do you believe? What, What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to trust him for our eternity, to trust him for our relationship based on what he did on the cross for us instead of trusting anything we do. See, we trust airplanes to fly us across the country. We don't stand on a cliff and begin to flap our arms hoping to get to California. We trust boats to get us across an ocean. We don't jump into the water and try to swim across the Pacific. We trust medicine to bring us health. If I had a terminal disease and there was a medicine that would cure me, I wouldn't say, well, I'm just going to do more exercise. I would trust that medicine and take it. And what to believe in Jesus means, we don't try to save ourselves through religion and our good works and believe that I'm better than most people, or at least I'm in the, you know, I got a 61 on God's test, and so I'm going to get in. That's like flapping our wings to try to get across the country. It's like trying to swim across the Pacific. We can't do it. We're sinners. And that's why Jesus Christ took our sin. He took our place. He paid for our sin by taking the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve. And so now he offers that as the medicine for eternal life. Because he's paid for it. He's accomplished it. believe in him is to say, yes, Jesus, you died for me. And because you took my sin away, I now can have a relationship with you. I can have eternity with you. I trust what Jesus has done for me, not what I do for myself. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he gives that life to you. Our Father, we thank you for your word. I pray we would keep it in our hearts that, Lord, this would give us the hope which is the light over our entire lives. That it is the hope that also cries out God does love me, no matter what's going around. It is the hope that says he will make all things new. He is the hope of our lives. May we embrace that gospel truth to the fullest, and may we share it with those who need it as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.